Good singing, church family. Well, you guys can turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 and um, start off with this question. How often do you think about the return of Christ? There's a few of you in the house every day. Throw them up if you think about it every day. All right, that's a really good sign. Actually, the more you think about the return of Christ, the more earthly good you really are. You've heard that phrase, you know, is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That's impossible, okay? And uh, today we're going to be talking about the return of Christ, but staying encouraged in, uh, along the journey of it. This week I was listening to a podcast of a historian and philosopher, and he was outlining kind of the, the crumbling um, Roman Republic. And as he began sharing about the history of Rome, you have to kind of sit there and take a deep gulp because the similarities are a bit shocking to what we face in our world. And he made the statement that history is a window into the future. And Tim said, yes, right, Tim? (laughs) And uh, I began thinking about why is history a window into the future? I really believe it's because human nature has not changed. Uh, The Bible describes human nature as sinful, uh, sinful from birth and sinful all the time. And then God's nature has not changed. So because human nature hasn't changed and God's nature hasn't changed, we can expect that people will repeat, repeat the same sinful process and we can expect God's character to shine forth in response to our sinful world. But the question I have is this, why don't people tolerate history? Why don't people tolerate history? Have you noticed that uh, as a culture and civilization, we just don't have a stomach for history? We don't. When I mention history, a lot of society yawns. But I began thinking about this because human nature hasn't changed. I think that we don't tolerate history because we tend to be lazy. Um, It takes work to study and read and listen. It takes humility to receive what others have experienced and humility to receive it as a warning to us. But much like Rome to America, there are two events in history that really give us an absolute window into the future. We're going to cover these in 2 Peter chapter 3, but they are basically the two just monstrous events. One is the creation week that God created this world, and the other one is the flood, how God in a catastrophic way flooded this world as an act of judgment. So today we'll see how these two events are a window into our future, and we're going to hear Peter's final words of encouragement as we wait for the return of Christ. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, and we're going to march right down through the text of 2 Peter chapter 3. Our Lord, thank you for your word. We realize that uh, we are prone, in to, because of our sinfulness, we're prone to um, distraction. We're prone to uh, walk after our own sinful nature. We're prone to um, turn a, um, a blind ear to... Um, what you have to say. Lord, we're inclined to not want to listen. 
And so we ask that as we read your text today, our eyes would watch, our ears would listen, and our hearts would respond with faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You guys can see it there uh, in your outline. It might be the longest outline you've ever seen at Open Door Bible Church. Uh, prepare yourself. This might be a bit long. We're trying to finish up the book of Second Peter uh, so that next week we start a new series on our core values. And so I want to encourage you, uh, if you have a habit of coming every three weeks, I want to encourage you to come for seven straight weeks. Come for our, here to hear our core values started next week as Pastor Sid gets back. All right, let's read it. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through our apostles, your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the great world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are rescued for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow. And keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will, be, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures so they're, so, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be, him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. 
So before we uh, march down verse by verse, I just want to say this. If you did not grow up in church, if you haven't been around uh, biblical teaching very long, this is going to be a lot. Just prepare yourself. If you're a bit overwhelmed, don't worry. Stay the course with us. And if you have questions, I would love to answer those or to sit uh, afterwards and talk with you as well. But what we're going to do is just march down verse by verse. So Peter says this in verse 1. Dear friends, this is my second letter to you. I've written both of them to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Peter knows that as you think, you go. So what invades the mind is what dictates the actions. And so he's gone to great lengths to help his readers, who are believers in Jesus, understand that as believers in Jesus, they have everything they need for life. He's communicated to them they have an inheritance in heaven that's kept for them, that though they can expect trials and tribulations like the Lord Jesus experienced himself, he challenged them as travelers to keep their eye on the eternal prize. He goes on to challenge us in 2 Peter that we're to fix in our hearts that Jesus Christ is really God and that the word of God is completely reliable. And the last time I taught, we went through chapter 2, that he warns that along this journey of walking with the Lord, there are going to be false teachers. You ought to be alert and aware and ready every time somebody opens the word and intends to teach the word. That would be now. So hopefully your words, the scriptures are open in front of you. You guys can read this together. So this leads us to chapter 3. The church has believed that Jesus is coming back. They've believed it from the words of Jesus in John 14 where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. They've also believed it since the angel communicated in Acts chapter 1 where he ascended into heaven and the angel said, why are you staring into the sky? This is Jesus who will return in like manner. And so the church for the last 2,000 years has believed that Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to judge the world and he's going to rescue those who have faith in him. But I started with that question. How often do you think about the return of Christ? I say that because it's been a really long time since he made these statements. 2,000 years? And how do you keep this in mind? How do you keep this at the forefront of your thoughts as you go about your daily lives? Well, he gives us these little teachings along the way in chapter 3 to help us do that. Let's pick it up in verse 2. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So here you have point number one. Remember what the scriptures already said about it. In Psalm 50 and Malachi 4, the holy prophets of old testified or prophesied that there would be an end of all things and God would judge the world with fire. It was foretold about it. The half-brother of Jesus and Jude said this, My dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there'll be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. That means they're not believers. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So the apostles throughout the New Testament refer some 300 times to the return of Christ, to setting up his kingdom, 
and to judgment. That's 300 times in the roughly 260 chapters of the Bible. So when we talk about the return of Christ, this is not some obscure teaching. This is not some like single item taught in the back of one of the books. This permeates the apostles' teaching. It permeates the whole of the Bible. So if you want to be encouraged as a believer in Jesus, if you're on God's side through faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to do a study about the return of Christ. You will find it's all over Scripture. But how do you stay encouraged along the way? Well, the first thing he gives us is a warning. Look at uh, verse 3. We're going to see that mockers will absolutely ridicule his return. Above all, he says in verse 3, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning. So he says, for you to stay the course, to be encouraged along this journey, he says, you've got to remember that people will come in the last days. That's the time from the ascension of Christ until the return of Christ. That's today. And he says, these scoffers are people who will not believe in his return. They will come scoffing. And their statement is, where's he at? They were scoffing, which is the lowest form of argument. And the early church genuinely believed that Christ would return in their lifetime. And the scoffing actually played on the emotional disappointment that they had believers dying. In fact, Paul was believed to have been dead by this time. Some of the other apostles had been killed. And here you have it, the disappointment of Jesus not coming back. So here they scoff in an emotional way. They're not really looking or really looking for answers at all. They're just scoffing. And the text says that they're following their own evil desires. This is what drives them. Chapter 2, verse 13 says that they actually carouse in pleasure in broad daylight. And the reason they scoff is because they want to continue in their sin. You do know what the return of Christ is all about, right? For the world, it's Judgment. So they understand that believing the return of Christ requires they have to acknowledge and reconcile their sin in light of a holy God. So the reason they don't believe is because it doesn't fit their lifestyle. Now I've observed that as Christians get entrapped with sin, they start to think about the return of Christ less. Unbelievers don't like or like to consider the return of Christ because it makes them feel gross because they're standing before a holy God. Again, I've never heard anybody deny the return of Christ after searching the scriptures and coming to a a solid theological truth from the word. I've only heard them reject it because it doesn't fit their lifestyle. Now, they came scoffing, saying, where is he at? Because they're following their evil desires. But they make another statement. They make a statement, things have always been the same since our ancestors or forefathers died. They make a claim of uniformity. Now, when I say the word uniformity or uniformitarianism, it's the concept that the Earth's surfaces have been shaped by gradual process, by kind of the general evolutionary idea of erosion, 
of earthquakes, of the natural things we see today. They argument that what I see happen today has always happened and will always happen. You see? Their argument is from what I see today has always been and will always be. They're arguing things have always gone on the same. God's actually been distant from us. And we've never seen God judge, so why would he judge now? It's really like saying, I've never lost a job, so I will never lose a job. I've never had a tumor, so I will never have a tumor. Right? It's like saying, I've never seen war, so we'll never see war. They're arguing from what they see. But the Bible clearly teaches something very different. The Bible teaches catastrophism. You can guess what that is. That there are certain events in time and history where God, with his supernatural power, intervened and did something amazing. We know from Scripture that God intervened in time and created this world. We know that he intervened in time and he judged this world through a global flood. So, friends, if you want to stay encouraged on the return of Christ, don't let mockers get you down. They're going to come. We see in verse 5 that mockers will deliberately revise history to deny the coming of the Lord Jesus. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So God has left us clear proof in his creation act and clear evidence of not only his ability to create this world, but his ability to judge the world. And the text here says, by God's powerful world, he spoke this world and the heavens into being and he formed the earth out of water. But the text here says they deliberately forget. This is called willful ignorance. They willfully ignore what the Bible teaches because they want to avoid the reality of judgment. Now, we open our eyes and we see intelligent design everywhere. If most of you guys have smart TVs, can I encourage you to check something out this afternoon if you haven't? Watch the riot and the dance. If you haven't, it is so cool. A biologist who loves Jesus with a film crew, goes out in creation and shares and highlights how the created order points to an awesome creator. It's done well. It's probably the best thing I've seen so far up to date. I want to encourage you to write in the dance. But we plainly see fossils at the top of Grand Canyon, and we say that points to a global flood. They see that evidence, and they flat out deny it. They reject it because the argument of a global flood dispels the argument of uniformity. So they close their eyes. Now the text says, the earth was formed out of water and by water. If you were to look back in Genesis 1, 1 through 10, you would see how when God created the world, the world was covered with this watery-like substance and out of this watery-like substance, God created It's a very fascinating account. But what you see is, as he begins to form the sky, he separates the water from the, with the sky in between, water below 
and water above. And you see in Genesis 1 that the, it records the maker stepping into time and it has a very abrupt account that what we see was created in six literal days. And because he's the maker of all things, he has the right and the authority and the power to judge and determine standards of conduct. What's really interesting, you'll see in chapter 1 of Genesis, that at creation, he installed the very tool that he would destroy the world with. So in that first season of life on earth, as people were living in sin, I should once say sin, but you can see how the water above and the water below, there seemed to be a canopy, it was there all along, instilled in creation, a tool by God. Now, verse 6, by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. Genesis chapter 7 goes to great detail to explain as the flood waters broke open the earth and from above, it says such water covered the face of the earth that water levels on the planet rose 15 cubits, a cubit's about 18 inches, 15 cubits above the highest mountains. And it says, everything that had the breath of life died. Only those who were in the ark with Noah were saved, eight and all. Bible goes to great detail in chapter 6 and 7 about this event. It's not vague about the extent of this flood. It's a global flood. It's not vague about the extent of the catastrophe of it the killing of all mankind except for those who are on the ark. And I have to say, false teachers will seek to discount what the Bible says about his judgment on earth. This judgment is so vast that most ancient cultures has some form of a creation account and they have some form of a flood account because it's true and because mankind violated God's holy standard. Now, What do these two events tell us? They tell us that God didn't just create the world and passively sits back while it spins in orbit. That our God has injected his divine power at times and places for his glory in this world. And since he made the world, he has the authority and the power to judge and we're accountable to him. So just be warned that people will come and they will try to revise history starting in the book of Genesis. So I encourage you to know your history according to the word. We also stay encouraged, we'll see in verse 7, remembering the power of God's word. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's God's word and his promise that sustains this planet for the day of judgment. Now, as Noah got off the ark, he sacrificed to God. God smelled the sweet-smelling aroma. And he says, never will I again flood the earth. He says, as long as the earth exists, there will be springtime and harvest, summer and winter. God promises to sustain the functions of this planet while this planet is around. 
It's just an interesting thought for you to ponder. I shared earlier from Genesis 1 how God's tool of judgment was placed in the world at creation, water above, water below. And we see here, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. What are sun, what's the sun and stars made out of? What's the core of the earth like? Just interesting. Just want to encourage you. And we can conclude that God has placed in this world the tools necessary to do what he's going to do. And I just want to give you an encouragement. This is, can I just have a brief shepherding moment? We'll go on. Um, there's all sorts of talk about this going green. And as Christians, how do we think about this? I think the, the green movement actually rightly identifies that things are not always going to stay the same. That's right. And as born-again Christians, I think we have a responsibility to steward what God's given us. I think it's really important. There's just one area, or one of the areas that I really feel like the, the movement of man as we engage in this movement goes wrong, is that the movement turns to man as the solution to a global issue. The text says it's reserved by the word of the Lord. And it says things will be melted. But besides the planet, there's another destruction here in the text. It says the ungodly. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all of us are ungodly. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ that he died and rose again that the Bible says he declares us righteous. And so it makes me very sad for people that I personally know who will encounter the return of Christ without being forgiven through the blood of Christ. Now, in case this talk about the return uh, terrifies you, I want to encourage you, as a, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, this is what the text says. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, that's what we're doing, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He also says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So this planet and this time is being held together by the very word of God. Can I encourage you, if your faith is in Christ, rest in that. But how long? Well, we're going to see in verse 8, we can learn God's perspective about his timing. Do not forget this one thing. Don't overlook this fact, friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Peter is, is intending to comfort the Christians on the seeming disappointment, on the Lord taking forever to come back. He quotes from Psalm 94, 
knowing that God's idea of time is very different than our idea of time. And just a quick observation, have you guys noticed, if you've got kids or grandkids or children in your life, you tell them you're going to get something for their birthday next week, and a week is forever. Have you noticed, as an adult, as you age, your relationship to time changes? You're all kind of doing this number, yeah. It's like every year goes faster and faster and faster. So some of you, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, right? Time goes faster the longer you live. The Bible says God's eternal. So the text uses the word like or as, or like a thousand years. But essentially we can conclude that God holds time in his hand. And as a thousand years go by, it's a passing moment to him. He's the one that holds it all together. But since time is nothing to God, why doesn't he come back for us? The text says it. He's not slow. He's not slack. He's not passive. He's not late. He's on purpose. He's intentional. And he has a plan. This is what the scripture says about Jesus coming to earth. But when the set time had fully come, in other words, God had a plan to send his son. God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. He also says in Hebrews 10, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. You can see there that those who believe are saved. So I bring this up to you, that our God is patient, and his delay is driven by his patience, and he is patiently waiting for more to change their mind. That's what repentance means, a change of mind. Change their mind about their sin, their need of forgiveness, and the fact and reality that Jesus Christ died and rose again for my sin and for your sin. The Lord's patience is the reason for his delay. We see it in Romans 2. Or do, you not, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So you can see according to this text that those who go to hell are those who through stubborn rebellion reject God's gracious gift of eternal life. Now, we'll continue to read in verse 10, but we're going to see that understanding the nature of his coming judgment can be very helpful. He says it in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done, it will be, done in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord is considered the day of wrath. It is his coming judgment on sinful people who are not trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. It is a time he ends the current world as we know it. Jesus actually talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. And in fact, oftentimes this passage is misread. People think of this as the rapture, the time that he calls us up. It's really not. It's actually the second coming. 
says this. So it's going to sound very familiar to the passage we just read. But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Floodwaters, judgment, took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. So if you don't believe that Christ died and rose again for your sin, I will say this very clearly. This should freak you out. Just like the floodwaters, his second coming will be an act of judgment. But if you do believe in Christ, which I believe this text is intended to encourage you, 1 Thessalonians 5 outlines clearly that the day of the Lord is a terror for those who are not God's friend through faith in Jesus. But it's meant to be a day of encouragement for those who are. Paul says in Corinthians 1, He will keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So according to the text in verse 10, for the wicked, it's like a thief. It's sudden and quick. The physical universe will, in a very quick, loud fashion, tumultuous crack of consuming flames will burst forth. And the elements, which is what everything is made of in our physical world, will be consumed in total destruction. So what do we invest in that will last forever? If all this stuff is going to get burnt up, your love and service to Christ and your investment in the very people around you are the only thing that matters. Now we'll pick it up in verse 11 because we're called to understand God's desire for us until he comes. Verse 11. Now, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That will day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. Now, look at the start of verse 11. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? The NIV English translation, I think, actually puts... There's an actual grammatical like uh, mistake there. It shouldn't be a question mark. That's not in the original. It should be a exclamation point. I'm going to read it to you how I think it should read. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? See the difference? It's like the Lord through Peter saying, Hey, hey, it's going to get burned up. You know that stuff you freak out over? It's going to just get roasted and melt down. You know where you're going. The king is coming back. Snap out of it. Quit freaking out about your car. Quit freaking out about your 401k. Quit freaking out about trying to preserve this body to every last ounce of... Hey, hey. He says this. Since everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And it's a command in light of the fact that everything is going to be melted down through fire, 
it informs our relationship to stuff. This is not a frown upon some of you who have a lot. It's not a condemnation of having material goods. It's an information to inform you on how to rightly relate. That God's kingdom and people matter more than things. That's the information given to us. And this is a call to focus more on our growing in holiness. You ought to live holy and godly lives. And in building up our godliness instead of gathering things. Now I have to say, I've heard all sorts of statistics. I don't care to throw it out at you. But I bet if we were all honest, we could all say that even in our church family over the last 10 years, pornography has gone through the roof. And I would say this, that is opposite of living holy and godly lives. And as we acknowledge or look forward to the day of God, the way we acknowledge or look forward is to confess the sin that so easily entangles us, And we look forward to his return. I believe these are opposing directions. I believe that as we grow in holiness or grow in spotlessness, meaning I'm not the same person I used to be, I'm looking forward to the day. The opposite is true. As I engage in sin and become ensnared with sin, I actually am turning away from the return of Christ. Now, Talking about speeding, it's coming here. In verse 13, we're going to see that there's got to be a destruction here of getting rid of the old so the new can come. So imagine the house you've been living in for 50 years has been burnt up. Imagine. And as you stand there watching the final smolder and the the pile and rubble, you might be tempted to despair. And uh, I imagine in my own life, the only thing that would encourage me is if there was some type of promise of something new getting built on that same site. Verse 13, but keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now imagine if I show up and I say, hey, you guys remember that roof repair that you needed to do and you got a quote for like 30, 30 grand? You remember that plumbing that constantly backed up? You remember that foundational issue on your house? You're like, yeah. And I say, ah, we're going to build it all new with none of those problems. Text says he is keeping his promise and we get to look forward to something new, a new heaven, new earth. He's telling us to remember this promise outlined in the end of Revelation that all that's wrong in this world will be gone and righteousness will move in and it will rule the day. He has promised this day is coming and we're called to look forward to it. Looking forward, dream about it. If it sounds good, fix your mind on it. It's actually intended for the believer in Jesus to create a warm, encouraging heart looking forward to something coming down the pipe. None of this sinful trash, no more temptation. So in the final thoughts in verse 14 about the return of Christ, he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Again, 
the false teachers in chapter 2 were considered blots and blemishes. And he says we should be growing in our spotlessness. I was thinking this week what it means to be faithful. Grow in holiness, rest in Christ. He says, as you look forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and and blameless and at peace with him. How should you spend your time? Grow in holiness, rest in him. That seemed pretty straightforward. Grow in holiness and rest in him. And all this talk about the end of all things should not trouble the Christian. It should cause us to praise him and thank him. God's kids are to be described as growing in spotlessness. Now in verse 15, he says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So take a deep breath. I don't know if you've experienced death. I don't know if you've experienced a certain pain that is very disheartening. Bear in mind the Lord's patience means salvation. So even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, you can be confident that while you wait on the Lord, more people are coming to faith in him. More people are coming to faith in him. Now the rest of verse 15 and 16, he refers to Paul here. And he says, by this time, really, actually, Paul's believed to have been with the Lord. And he refers to Paul's writings as being difficult to understand. But he definitely banks on or leans on them as scripture and as continuous support for his case being made here. And in verse 17, he says, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard. That you may not be carried away by error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. So he says, now knowing that these false teachers will always seek to twist scripture, be on your guard. So what this really means, every time somebody teaches a spiritual truth, your Bible should be open. Don't ever sit passively listening to theological truths being taught. You should look at the text. You have the spirit of God in you by faith in Jesus. You have the word of God in front of you. We have so many Bibles around us. Never sit there passively hearing without seeing for yourself. Now he says here, they fall from their secure position. That's what the NIV translates. Some of your translations may say, lose your own stability or fall from your steadfastness. Now the natural thought is, was this a losing your salvation? Has he been talking about the gospel or salvation so far? No. What's he been talking about? The return of Christ and the encouragement of it. The confidence you should have about it. And he's telling them, in light of chapter 2 with false teachers, if you believe lies about the return of Christ, you will have insecurity. You will. You'll start to feel a little bit, I'm not sure if I'm ready. You will start to lack security and confidence about his return. When you believe what the Bible says about the return of Christ and you're trusting in him alone, it will produce a readiness and a confidence. It brings encouragement. The final command here, and we'll end it here. He challenges him, he says, but instead of being carried away, being insecure about the end, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should you spend your time in light of his return? Strengthen yourself with God's grace. You will never 
get to the bottom of the well of God's grace. The longer you walk with the Lord, you realize how undeserved you are and how amazing his grace is. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize you do not understand how awesome Jesus Christ is. So the extent of our life should be investing in challenging each other on how awesome our Lord Jesus is and his grace is. So friends, let's end with this. He's coming back and the following will take place. Can we read this together? We've done this before, but I'd like to just kind of corporately everybody read this because I want to give this as a warning. We can do this today or you'll be forced in the end. Can we read it together? Here we go. And being found as appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So today is the day of salvation. Today, he's patient. I, I have no idea where you all are. He's not returned because he wants you to believe in Christ. Today you have a choice. Tomorrow, every knee will bow. The return of Christ can be a comfort, and it's intended to be a comfort for those who believe in him. But I do warn you, and this is a pretty serious warning, it's intended to be a day of terror for those who intend to meet God apart from the forgiveness that he extends through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, for the last 2,000 years, we have, as a church, anticipated and looked forward to your return. We admit there's so many distractions. There's so many discouragements. So today we thank you for the word that you gave us today. We thank you for how it instructs us that there will be scoffers. It instructs us that you have been involved since the beginning and you'll be involved until the end. Help us never believe the lie that you're not involved. Lord, as a body, help us to live in light of eternity. May we grow in spotlessness May we acknowledge the sin that so easily entangles us and may we look forward to that day. Lord, I pray that the reality of your coming judgment would help us and inform us on how to live in relationship to thanks. We thank you for your amazing grace. It's so cool how we can know in your word what you're going to do and we can rest and trust in you for what comes down the pipe. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.